I recently learned, reading some articles just this week, that uh, this surprising little creature kills more people every year than any other creature, and the death toll is rising. You know what that little creature is? I think I heard it. Here's a clue if you needed one. Malaria deaths rose about 8% between 2019 and 2021. And that's the first time that's increased in decades. In other words, as uh, mosquito-fighting scientists in Kenya said, it seems as though the mosquitoes are winning. It's this tiny little mosquitoes are literally killing us as human beings. Despite our big brains, our bigger bodies, despite all the resources and knowledge we have accumulated, we're losing to a pesky little bug. As we turn to Mark chapter 1, again, looking at Mark 1 for the next couple of weeks still, we're in verses 14 and 15, which happen to be the first words Mark gives us of Jesus personally speaking as he comes on the scene in Mark's gospel. And this passage tells us implicitly, without much digging, that in fact we are facing a disease more prevalent than malaria, uh, uh, an enemy more powerful than mosquitoes, and yet much smaller, that brings a disease that kills 100% of those it infects, and that in fact has infected every one of you in this room. Not because of me, but because of your own actions and the actions of Adam and Eve. This small, deadly virus is sin. And as Jesus comes on the scene here in Mark's gospel, he follows John the Baptist who called us to repent and to be baptized. Jesus comes along and says something very similar, but something a little different. Effectively saying, things are much worse than you could possibly imagine. But there's good news. Treatment is available. The cure has arrived if you will receive it. With that in mind, would you read with me just these two verses of Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 of God's Word, the inspired, infallible, life-giving Word of God. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is God's word. Lord, bless our ears, our eyes, our hearts with the cure that you provide Bring your spirit to accompany your word that we might be transformed, that we might receive what you have to offer us today as more than ink on paper, pixels on the screens, 
sound waves hitting our eardrums. Lord, may you bring to us the life-giving cure for what ails us most. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the journalist who wrote the article that I read this week about malaria and mosquitoes uh, has, has been studying global health issues for 25 years and, and writing about malaria for the, that whole time. She said even that she was surprised at what she found, that we aren't making steady progress against malaria, that in fact things have gone backwards. As that Kenyan scientist said, the, the mosquitoes seem to be winning in the battle against malaria. And the problem, some experts say, is that it takes uh, agencies like the World Health Organization and other government institutions that regulate such things, it takes them a very long time to approve insecticides and treatments and things like that, preventative measures. They typically want years of evidence to accumulate before approving any new strategies. And meanwhile, people die and more people die. And it seems like if, if you want to make progress against malaria and against mosquitoes, the amount of evidence you need is just a little bit more. And I want to ask you, if you want to make progress against sin and brokenness, if you, if you want to make change in your life, how much more evidence do you need to realize that what you're trying isn't working? That the solutions you think are helpful aren't working. And usually the, the answer we have is what? Just, I want just a little bit more evidence. You know, just bang my head against the wall a couple more times, then maybe I will realize that there might be a better way and I will listen. And Jesus comes along and he, and he offers that to you and to me, that there is hope, that, that there is a cure for the problem that afflicts every one of us. And it's really, really good news that we can embrace and we can receive. And the problem is, even just in these couple of verses, you could probably see it, right? The problem is that, that this is freely offered and sounds kind of easy, but it's not really appealing or comfortable. It, when was the last time you just went and declared to everyone, yay, repent and believe, yay. You know, you, you tend to picture people saying repent and believe as the angry people sharing the gospel somewhere with the scowl. But this is good news. It's also hard news. It's what we need to receive. It's what we need to hear. That this is the cure for what ails us. But it's hard. In fact, if you read through Mark's Gospel, you will see that almost every human being in this story, except for Jesus, right, who is not just human, he's also God, every human struggles to embrace the good news for what it is as good news. Yet, diseases and disasters and demons... And even death all respond to the good news appropriately, whether they want to or not. Jesus calms the raging seas. Jesus heals diseases. He raises the dead. He expels demons. Jesus does all of these things, except get the human beings to really embrace the good news easily. But we have an advantage, right? We've, we've heard the story. We 
got the whole story. We see the end. And so if we will tune into it, if we will listen to what Jesus has to say here, uh, we can have some hope. And we've talked about repentance and faith several times over the last few weeks as we've been looking at Mark 1. So I'm not going to dwell on them as much today. What I, what I want us to look at today from these couple of verses is, is our, our motivation of taking the medicine that God provides. How, how do we embrace repentance and faith as good news? Well, first thing you need to realize is that, that the gospel cures your soul when you understand your Savior is King. Right? The gospel cures your soul when you understand your Savior is King. And that He's a particular kind of King. And that's what we're going to unpack today. He's not just any King. But He is, first of all, a mighty King. He has power. He's been working throughout all of history, even before history itself, before the creation of the world. He's been working all things together to accomplish his plan. Mark 1, verse 15 says, Jesus' first words, right? Mark 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. It's a way of saying, look, I I have been waiting for this point in time for the years to pass, the decades to pass, the centuries to pass, the millennia to pass, that now this is happening. It's now, Jesus says. The time is fulfilled. The plan is in place and it's working out just the way God designed it to be. Paul says in Galatians 4.4, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. The, the fullness of time has come. Jesus says, this is it. I am here as the mighty King. And just in this chapter alone, chapter 1, you don't have to turn anywhere. You can see Him exercising His power again and again. Look at verse 23. He has power over demons, unclean spirits. They cry out to him, verse 24 of chapter 1, what business do we have with each other, Jesus? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Jesus has power over demons. They don't want to obey him, but they have to. And, he know, and they know that he will one day completely destroy them. That is not this time. This time, as Jesus comes on the earth, he's demonstrating his power. That he's a mighty king. He has come down to earth and demonstrates that power. In chapter 1, we don't have time to list all of these, but chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus confronts disease. Simon's mother-in-law is sick. He heals her. Verse 40, a leper comes to Jesus asking to be healed. Jesus heals him. In verse 32 and 34, there's a summary basically of all that Jesus does. He, he, he heals those who are sick. And he casts out the demon-possessed, right? He, he, he exercises his power in all these things, showing that he is the mighty king, that he has the very power of God 
come to earth. And he's using it again and again. And what does he get for that, though, brothers and sisters? What does the story go on to say? He gets rejected. Despite the demonstration of, of his power as a mighty king, he is persecuted. He is marginalized. He is afflicted. He is beaten. He is killed. I think it points to the reality that we find power in other people's hands to be pretty scary. We all kind of feel a little comfortable probably with power in our own hands, but when someone else comes along and has more power, whether it's that they're taller or stronger or better looking or have more followers or more friends or more money or a nicer car, which all of those things have a sense of power to them. They bring influence, right? We get a little threatened. You know, that power in other people's hands is scary. And here we see one who has a tremendous amount of power. And that's why it's so important to know that he's, he's not only the mighty king, but that your Savior cures your soul when you understand he is not only mighty, but he is also a good king. He's a mighty king. He is also a good king. If you look at the verses before what we are, have just read today, John the Baptist comes on the scene, right, with his baptism of repentance, and people are confessing their sins, verses 4 and 5. And, and essentially, John is saying, you know, the mighty king is coming, and he's good. And for you to be with him, you have to be clean. You have to be pure. That's the sense of goodness, right? It, it is uh, moral purity of doing what is right, of having no stains, no spots, to be without blemish, to have a lovely heart within that always does what is right. And, and John says that, that implicitly, that's who this coming king is. He's mightier than I am. And he's also good. And he argues with Jesus. We went into this and don't have time to dig into it too much today. But John was reluctant to baptize Jesus, who is the coming king, the mighty king, because Jesus is also the good king. He has no sin. He's never done anything wrong. And John says, I, you don't need to be baptized confessing sins. You have no sin to confess. Effectively, John's saying, look, I need to be baptized by you. You need to cleanse me. I'm impure. And Jesus says, no, I've come among my people. And I will do what is good. Including identifying with them to the degree that people might associate me with sinners even though I have no sin, that I might extend myself to the people that are despised by others, though it might bring despite upon me, that I will do that because I am good, Jesus says. He's pure. The big biblical word for this, even though it's small, is holy, to be set apart. You know, not, not just, you know, not dirty, but clean, but a step above that now to be pure and holy, set apart. The angels in heaven are before the throne of God, Isaiah 6 tells us, and again in Revelation it says, He is the one who is what? Holy, holy, holy. 
The Lord God Almighty, the one with might, is also the one who is holy, set apart, pure, good. The one who, 1 Timothy 6 says, dwells in unapproachable light. He's that clean that he will destroy you if he shines before you. Lord willing, at the end of the service, we're going to sing holy, holy, holy. And there's a wonderful line I want you to notice when we do sing it that says, he's perfect in power, in love and purity. And those are the three facets we're talking about today. The might, the power, the purity, the goodness, and the love we'll get to in a second. This is, this is your king. He's good. He's spotless. John would call him the spotless lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. That's who he is. He has no wrinkles. His skin is perfect. If you, if you want to think of it physically and on earth, it, I don't know if it was or not. But his soul is that equivalently. That he hasn't done anything wrong. But what about us, right? We, on the other hand, always have sins to confess. We always have things that we have done wrong in word, in thought, in deed. That we all are in need of owning up to some portion of our life that has not quite accepted our mighty king who's a good king. And we're not letting that king into that part of our hearts to clean us up and purify us. And the, that's the reality, right? When, when, if you think about when we get power, part of the problem is whether it's you know, good looks or riches or a nice car or any kind of position of authority over others, just even being a parent or a teacher, much less you know, pastors and elders or presidents and congressmen, senators, judges. When we get into power, there's a tendency to, to have some corruption into it because our hearts have that taint in them. That there is a brokenness within us. And we can think of you know, dictators and greedy chief executives of companies that they get into power and use that power for their own good, right? That, that they aren't good themselves. But if you just think about the last time you were driving a car and you had that power of an automobile, and I, I, I resonate with this with my family will agree, right? You, you change. You say things to other drivers, to pedestrians, to other people that, you know, sometimes when the windows are down and my, my wife's just like, oh... <laughs> She's like, do you know where the windows are down? Yeah. yeah. You know, I would never say that to someone's face. That's, you, you just get a little bit of power. What's happening there? Studies have shown this. You know, there's some studies about it. But part of it is, the, is, the, is now the distance, right? You're now, you have some power in this car. You know, you're removed from other people. Um, you know, woe be to anyone who gets in your way, right? You are now not only depersonalizing those people, they become objects that you are interacting with, but you're, in fact, dehumanizing yourself. You become less. Because I don't think you want to be that person. I, I don't want to be that person. That's the evidence of that, is that I would never say that face-to-face -face with someone, right? That's not who I am. Plus, they might beat me up, right? Or something. That... That, just that little hint of power. You know, we do it as parents. You know, we do it as leaders. It's one of the reasons why 
in, in church ministers, especially church officers, but more than elders and deacons, in any kind of leadership position, especially in the church, we, we, we have the number one qualification, number two, three, four, five, six, maybe eight. I can't remember how many are in First Timothy at this point, right? They're all about character. They're about who you are. Yeah, it's great that you're a good teacher or whatever, right? But the number one qualification is what's your character like? You know, are, are you more interested in getting, proving that you're right than in blessing other people with your leadership? You could go on, but the issue is this, that you need to be able to lead yourself to see where you need help, to use your gifts as just that, gifts from God that you're stewarding in, in any kind of position. Parents, teachers, bosses, leaders of any type. Before leading others, you need to lead yourself. And, and I hope as you realize that, you know, God is a mighty king. He's got this power, but he's also good, right? And that's, that's his call for us. That's what he created us to do, who he made us to be, that we would have dominion over the fish of the sea, the, the beasts of the land, right? That, that we would exercise power over all things and that we would do that in a good way as image bearers of him, that people would look at us and, and understand God because of how we live because the way we use our power, our might, our strength. And because we realize that's not who we are, I hope you realize that's not who you are, that, that we need to grow in that direction. That's why it's so important to know that, that your king cures your sin problem. When you realize that, that your Savior is not merely a mighty king, he's not merely a good king, but he is a loving king. He's a loving king. Would you look back at our text here and see what he says as he comes on this scene, verse 14. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. How is that evidence that he's a loving king? Okay, here's how. He didn't just show up and say, look, I told you hundreds of years ago that I was going to come. Why weren't you waiting? Right? He said, John, come, prepare the way, remind the people that I am coming. And he didn't just say it hundreds of years ago, right? That there would be one who was coming in Isaiah and in Malachi, right? Very last prophet before the coming of Christ, 400 years before, you know, he said he'd send his messenger to prepare the way. You know, that, then there's silence. And then he comes on and he says, look, I'm here. But he said that before in Isaiah, hundreds of years before Malachi, the prophet, right? And he said it before that. In fact, from the beginning of history, just about, God said, I'm going to come and I'm going to fix the problem. Because I love you, I'm going to patiently endure until my plan can come about. And I'm going to use my power and it's going to be a good plan because I love you. From Genesis 3.15, it was very clear. God said this, we looked at it weeks ago. He said, I will come and I will be bruised on my heel. 
but I will crush Satan, the enemy of humanity. And that theme kept repeating itself. Abram, you're going to be a blessing to the nations, and through you I will bless everyone. He said to Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet greater than Moses. Listen to him. He revealed himself to the nation of Egypt and the plagues and pulling his people out of there that they might know that he is the Lord, the faithful God, the loving God. And he promised to bring a king greater than David, that David's greater son would one day come to rule over his people forever. And that God did all of this out of love. That that God's kingdom, Jesus says, has come. This is good news, an evidence of a loving God who's used his might and his goodness to bring about a demonstration of his love. As Jesus comes in verse 15 saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. That God says, now I'm here. The kingdom has arrived. And the kingdom of God is not something that you can find on, on a physical map. You know, you can't, um, right now I'm in the kingdom. Right now I'm out. Oh, I'm back in. There's no border that you can see. In fact, the kingdom of God in the scriptures, more often than not, almost always refers to the reign, the rule of God. That it is his kingness. His royal rule reigning over. And the way you enter the kingdom, the way you experience the benefits of this king who is mighty and powerful, this king who is good and always does what is right, this king who loves you, the way you enter in is by repenting and lining back up with him. Because to begin with, we were in that kingdom. The Garden of Eden was essentially the kingdom of God on earth. He's there walking with them and they're obeying him. And when we went astray through Adam and Eve and we have done it on our own individually, we left the kingdom. And God comes down to earth, unites himself to humanity in the person of Jesus Christ, demonstrating his love not only by dwelling with us, not only by living perfectly and teaching us, but by using his might in conjunction with his goodness to show his love that he would use those things to take our place. Did not have to do that. In a sense, and don't push this too far because it's probably heretical somewhere in here, but in a sense, Jesus comes down and, and leaves the kingdom and suffers all of the punishment for that. It, the equivalent of treason. I just was reading recently, there's some city up in New England somewhere that's, that somehow celebrates Benedict Arnold every year by like burning him in effigy or something, right? The greatest traitor in the history of the United States, right? They, they just burn him over and over again. And a big dummy, not a person, like you know, a stuffed dummy. They burn him in effigy, uh, celebrating. Maybe as a reminder, I don't know. But in a sense, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of what we're doing. Again, don't push this too far with, with communion where we're remembering that Jesus took our place. We were the traitors. We should be the ones not burning in effigy, but burning in hell for eternity. 
But he goes outside the camp, the scriptures say, that he takes the wrath of God. He, he suffers for us. Yet he's so mighty and so good that like a beach ball being pressed underwater, he's not going to stay down. You could keep him down for a little bit with all the weight of that sin, but there's so much might, so much goodness, so much power in that that he just explodes back up. And it is that power that's now at work in you that you would believe the good news of this loving king and you would repent. You would say, not merely, oh, that was really bad, and I don't want to be that kind of person, but God is so really good, and he's so loving that he would do that for me, that I, I want to be on his team. I want to be in his kingdom. I, I want to live at, with him as my father. I, I want to experience all those benefits and all the joy of being in his presence. Because that's what most marks him as a loving king, is that he would use his might coupled with his goodness to love you. And what is love? It is doing good for others without any thought of return, right? It's a part of your character uh, expressing itself in action. And he comes to do that for you, to take your place. And the interesting thing is that when we understand that, you know, repentance and faith become a lot more palatable. You know, that, that picture is, you know, the, the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. That's the... It's not only that, though. It doesn't just make it appealing. It makes it possible. Because without a God who does those things, without a God who is mighty, able to bring it all about, without a God who is good and is using His power out of His character to do good, without a God who is loving, we would just suffer. He would not provide a way for taking away our sin without us suffering the punishment. But that's who He is. And the cure that we most need is, is to believe that, to understand that the gospel cures your soul when you understand your Savior is king. You not only understand that, but when you believe it. And when you want it in your heart enough that you're willing to repent of your particular sins, particularly. Of the words, of the thoughts, of the deeds, of the things you've done and the things you've left undone of the good that you should have done and the bad that you have, to bring that all before the Lord and to really believe that Jesus paid for those sins, that they are truly nailed on the cross, and that in believing that, you are now connected to Him and part of his rule over you and the way you enter the kingdom is not merely just this outward external. It's not merely just words, but it is actually a transformation of your heart where his power works in you to bring his goodness within you that really your only response is to now love him. Your only response is to now embrace him and turn from that. And the problem is that we're still a little broken. The problem is that he's allowed us to stay here in this place for a season. He'll one day finish the good work he's begun in us. But meanwhile, we're still going to turn aside. And, and the measure of our acknowledgement of who he is 
and our belief that he's got the cure is, is our willingness to just continually repent and desire to change, our openness to receiving correction and feedback from others, our, our willingness to go in places where we use our might and our power, whatever it is, to do good for others, where we sacrifice for our children, where we um, serve those that we lead for their good, when these things are uncomfortable, when they're inconvenient, when you name it, right? Because that's what your Savior King has done for you and is doing in you as you repent and believe the good news. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are clearly mighty. We see that again and again in the Gospels, and I pray in our own hearts and lives. You are truly good. We see that again and again in the Gospels. And I pray in our own lives as we become good by your power at work in us. You are truly loving and that you laid down your life for us, and I pray we see that not only in the Gospels, but in our own lives as your power and your goodness work in us to make us loving. Lord, where we, we set aside some time on uh, Halloween night to come and be in a noisy place and hand out candy or run some games or just smile at the children and, and, and endure the noise. Lord, where we, we go shopping and we buy a little extra for other people. Lord, where we come out to uh, a banquet and listen to a speaker and give. Lord, where, where we supply funds for a walkathon or where we go out ourselves. Lord, where we volunteer to serve in other ways, where we come in and, and spend some time as assistant in the classroom with the kids. Oh, Lord, whatever it is, and however it is, even, Lord, not just within the church and our ministry, but even in our families, Lord, where we get up in the middle of the night or where we go places our kids want to go that we're not interested in, where we listen, Lord, where we reach out, where we persevere, where we sacrifice. Oh, Lord, I pray we see that more and more because you are our Savior King. And you have the cure for our souls in your good news. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.